Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to The Important Part, bringing you an episode today on technical analysis. If you don't know what that is, you're about to find out. And I have a wonderful guest here to teach us about it, one of the best in the biz and, and my friend, and I love his work. I've respected his work for a long time. And that guest is Chris Verone. Chris Verone is a partner of Strategus and the head of the firm's technical strategy and macro research team. He's also a member of the firm's asset allocation and investment policy committee. His regularly published research highlights actionable investment opportunities across the equity, commodity, foreign exchange, and fixed income markets. Chris is a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg Television, and Fox Business, and is often quoted in the domestic and foreign financial press. He has consistently ranked among the top macro analysts on Wall Street in the annual All-America Research Survey by Institutional Investor Magazine over the last decade, and is particularly known for combining a rigorous examination of financial history with empirically driven analysis. Chris holds a master's in political science from Villanova University and a bachelor's in international political economy, also from Villanova. With that, let's get to the interview. All right, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. I am really, really excited to have you here for a number of different reasons. I think our listeners are going to love hearing about all the charts and the technicals and all the fun stuff that you watch. And, and it's a nice departure from a lot of the different topics that I've covered on this podcast. But thank you very much for coming. Strategus is one of my favorite research providers. We've become friends. I love the company. I love what you guys put out there. So really appreciate your time today. Well, Liz, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. All right. So let's start with technicals and not just not a real basic definition of technicals, but talk about what they are useful for in financial analysis. Well, it's a great question, Liz. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions that technicals are just lines on charts or voodoo or black magic. And we take a very okay. different approach. Um, when I think about Wall Street, the language of Wall Street is really charts, right? When you go into a meeting, you show people pictures. Whether you're a fundamental analyst and you're showing them pictures of earnings revisions or whether you're a technical analyst and you're showing them pictures of stock prices. So just the language of our business tends to be communicated through pictures. I think pictures do a really good job of telling a narrative. Now, as far as technicals for me, I'm going to maybe answer this question a little bit differently than you might expect. I, I wake okay. up every morning and I say... And you, you see charts. I, you dream in charts. I, I dream in charts. <laughs> I, 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 I actually do dream in charts. Um, oh, God. I, I, I wake up every morning and I ask myself the question, is the message of the market justifying whatever the prevailing consensus view out there is? So if the prevailing consensus uh -huh. view is that dollars should go down, is the market justifying that? If the prevailing consensus view is that we're at a part of the cycle where consumer discretionary should outperform, is it, right? That is, I think, using the market almost as my own fundamental analyst, conceding that I will never be a good enough forecaster 
to beat the message of the market and then simply asking, is the consensus, are the majority of investors properly aligned to that message? And, you know, Liz, I've, I've thought about it from the context of, as you know, I publish every day and I, I really try to do three things, right? The, the first thing I try to do, and this is probably the easier part of the job between you and I, it's to be provocative <laughs> or to be thoughtful, right? I mean, I, 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 won't, at, I won't tell anybody. Yeah, I, I look at <laughs> thousands of charts every week. I, I think there's one thing I could show you in, you know, a, a, a 10 page report that may either change the way you think about the world or confirm the way you think about the world. That's always the first goal. Mm-hmm. The second goal admittably is more challenging. It's to be correct. I I will humbly concede I'm no more right or wrong than anyone out there. But Mm -hmm. what I will also admit to is that the market's a better forecaster than me. And I'm going to listen to the message of the market and try to get aligned in that direction. And then third, and I think this has been particularly important these last couple of years in particular, is to be very aware of both the consensus view and the historical implications of whatever type of moment that we're in, you know, we've we've always said in these crisis periods um, that, irrespective of the crisis, uh, you still only have three choices, right? Are you buying something? Are you selling something? Are you doing nothing? So whether it was COVID or Russia or nine eleven or eighty seven, you're still governed by three choices, and that's why technicals and behavior and psychology are so important in this business. Okay, so that and that's fascinating. It, let's talk about the the gap that sometimes exists between consensus and what the market is saying, right? So and, and when we talk about consensus, I'm going to define it and, and you tell me if you define it differently. I'll define it as probably a lot of fundamental analysts, frankly, having let's call it price targets on a certain index or price targets or or some sort of buy signal on a sector or a group of stocks. And consensus might also be consensus on earnings, right? Earnings are going to be revised up, revised down, grow, contract, whatever the case may be. And then what you're looking at in a technical chart is what? Things like flows, things like valuations, things like the momentum of that particular call? What are you looking at to confirm whether or not the market is on the same page? Well, Liz, I think to keep it in its most basic sense, the, the, the first thing we're looking at is simply price, right? So let's use the example mm-hmm. of, we've talked about this for 18 months now, this example of Amazon, right? Amazon, I think there's 60 analysts who bottom up fundamental analysts who cover Amazon. Um, up until very recently, all 60 of them had a buy rating on the stock. So 60 smart people all have the same opinion. A, I'm skeptical when 60 smart people all have the same opinion about something. And and that was largely the case in Amazon for the last two years. But there was one problem with that, right? If if 60 of 60 people had a buy rating and very aggressive price targets on the stock, wouldn't you expect the stock to be going up? The problem was it wasn't. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it hasn't made anyone any money in two years. So I'm like, okay, is the market wrong or are the analysts wrong? I, I don't think the market's wrong. Right, So there, I think, is an example right. of where the street or the consensus or the collective wisdom of the group is missing the obvious message. Uh, let's use another example right now. Uh, one of the things you've heard often, particularly over the last six months or so, more from the economists is that, well, an economic slowdown is really not going to be a big deal because consumer, the consumer class is so healthy, right? We have large savings, pent-up savings from COVID, generally healthy balance sheets. Therefore, 
um, a slowdown with the consumer isn't really something to fear. Well, one problem with mm -hmm. that. Why are the consumer stocks acting so badly? Mm -hmm. right, right. So when I look at the housing stocks down 40 or 50 percent or the retailers down by a similar magnitude. So when you get these moments where the market just doesn't justify what the consensus is preaching, I think is a pretty good example of where that gap or we call it daylight, right, where that daylight is pretty wide. And when that daylight is at its widest, I think there's considerable opportunity to make money. I'll, I'll give you one more example. We talked about this. This was a big part of our call back in April, May, June of 2020, right? In in the fog of war, in the early days of COVID, where pessimism was just so remarkably pronounced across the street. I can remember you and I were talking almost every day, just kind of about mm -hmm. markets and where we were. The one thing that we couldn't reconcile, hmm, if everyone's so pessimistic, why does consumer discretionary outperform every single day, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what you expect going into some devastating recession or some bear market. And it's little clues like that. So I guess maybe to go back to our initial question, I, I kind of view technicals as searching or on the hunt for these little clues to best understand the market's message or the market's intention. Okay. So then I have a question about strategus internally, and I hope I don't get you in trouble by answering this. But uh -oh. <laughs> so, let, so let's say, because so at, at the company, you've got Jason as a strategist, you've got sector specialists, you've got people that are doing the fundamental analysis, and then they have maybe broader views about where asset allocation should be in the present moment and where we are in the business cycle. You've got political strategists, the whole thing, right? Let's say there's uh, a, a bullish view on some sector, some portion of the market, and you're looking at the technicals and they are telling you the opposite, much like the Amazon example you just gave. What do you do then? Do you go like running down the hallway and <laughs> into Jason's office and say, stop, don't say that anymore? Like, how, do you, how does the company mesh that together? So it's a great question. And it's a great question. Number one, what, what you describe is a good problem to have because we're fortunate to have this stable of exceptional macro analysts. Jason Trenard, our chief strategist, does a lot of the thematic thinking. As you know, Don Rissmiller, I think the best economist on the street, Dan Clifton uh, from D.C. And the reality is from time to time, we'll see things differently. But what I think what we have in common is we're humble enough to know that at the end of the day, we really don't know, right? They say there's economists mm -hmm. who uh, don't know, and then there's economists who don't know that they don't know, right? And at, at a minimum, we know that we don't know. And we want to be mm -hmm. very, very pragmatic in our approach. I, I, I would say, given the different disciplines we use to approach all of our respective work, I actually find it remarkable how often we are at least in broad agreement about how we see things. And I, I think that's a function of Jason and Don and Dan and myself having a respect for the message of the market. Like Our goal is to not prove we're smarter than the market or smarter than a client. Our goal is to help people make money and mm -hmm. uh, being as pragmatic as possible and kind of checking the dogma or the ego at the door, I think is one of the assets of our collective group. Yeah. I think of it a lot. I think of this business a lot and especially of being a strategist in this business a lot as sailing on the ocean, right? Where at the end of the day, you still have to respect the sea and the sea is going to do what it does. Yeah. The best you can do is navigate regardless of what the weather pattern is, regardless of what's come your way or regardless of what's going on with the boat that you're in, right? 
you still have to respect the sea. And in our case, the market is the sea. And the market should usually send signals ahead of time before other things start to crack. That's a very eloquent description. I would say a, certainly a legend in the business who's talked about this or described this is kind of the Soros approach, which is we may only get on our best day 60% of the information we need to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So we better manage our risk really well when we're only operating with 60% of the inputs. I think about it maybe in a less eloquent way. As you know, I have, I, I have young children, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, my four-year-old, she loves to do puzzles. And the problem, if any of your listeners have young children who try to do puzzles, is that you open the box, you put out all the pieces on the table, and you get about you know, maybe 70% of the way there, and then you're realizing you're missing the other 30% of pieces. Some are in the mm-hmm. sofa cushion, some have been eaten by the dog, right? So <laughs> you... You, you get there and, and you just can't get all the pieces together. I mean, isn't that what we do every day? Like yeah. we can get 60, 70% of the way there, but then you got to take a circumstantial leap yeah. um, a, about where markets may be going. And you also have to be willing to change when the market says you're wrong. And, you know, I, I've been fortunate to be doing this for, I've been in this business 17, 18 years. And I, I think the the lessons every analyst has to learn is, when you're wrong, you got to change because mm-hmm. you're not helping yourself and you're not helping your clients. Yep. Yeah. And you know what? I I had a couple instances of that this year. I'd like to hear in the last couple of years, maybe times that you remember where you had to do that. And and I kept thinking to myself, okay, the Fed is data dependent. I too have to be data dependent, right? I came into 2022 thinking this is going to be tough. We've got inflation. We've got a tightening cycle coming, but we can do it. We're strong enough, Right. But then there's things you don't see coming, like a war between Russia and Ukraine, or the fact that inflation ended up being a lot stickier than any of us imagined, even if you weren't in the in- in transitory camp. So I had to change my tune a couple times in the sense of I was a little bit more optimistic than this. I didn't think that recession would be such a big fear. And now it's like, well, you know what? That might be the reality. So let's just take that as a possible reality. What do we still do with that as investors, right? So have there have there been times over the last, let's start with six months, where you've had to pivot or change yeah. your take on whatever whatever the call was or whatever you thought was going to happen? Yeah, certainly. I mean, in particular, the last six months, I, I came into the year... Um, we were lucky we kind of got the, the market dynamics correct, but what I did not get correct was the dollar's role in all of this. And it just shows you how like linear thinking um, is often unnecessary in this business. Like my thinking was at the start of the year that energy sector leadership would continue because I saw dollar weakening. Now, the irony is I got the investable conclusion correct that the energy stocks kept working, but the irony is I got it right for the wrong reasons. Uh, I, I thought yeah. it would work because dollar would weaken, which clearly did not happen. So I can remember it was maybe February-ish, and I was kind of out there with this with this weak dollar call, and the market just wasn't justifying it. So mm-hmm. you can either sit and continue to be wrong, or you can go back and recheck your work. And right. In my world, typically when you go back and recheck your work, it, it leads to a, a change of view. So th- that was probably the most recent example. I'll give you a, an opposite example of where I felt we stuck our necks out kind of against the grain and were rewarded for it. We're kind of in those early months of COVID where the pessimism around us was pronounced. I mean, it was hard to not be bearish. Um, mm-hmm. And I was proud as a group that we recognized 
that the market just wasn't validating the bearishness. And we saw that mainly through leadership, like the outperformance of very early cyclical groups was not consistent with a prolonged bear market in April, May of 20. I thought we certainly saw it when you look at stuff like trucks and transports and semis. I mean, those were early to lead coming off the 2020 lows. And what was disorienting, though, was the world around us, right? Things were closed and you weren't in your office, but the market just kind of went about its business. So, you know, it happens on both sides. I don't think in this business, and this is maybe a misconception, I don't think being a contrarian means going against the market. I think it means recognizing when the market's defying the consensus and deciding what team you want to play on. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's add on to that question then. Has there been a chart this year that you thought was sending a certain signal that turned out to be completely wrong? Yeah, I thought the gold chart, frankly, and this was kind of yeah. part of the dollar view that, hey, you know, dollar breaks, gold should work, inflation, risk to fiat currency. I mean, I can tell you a very eloquent story why gold should work or a very compelling right. story, but <laughs> right. I, the fact that it's not working. And, and, you know, that's what's interesting about this business is I think too much emphasis is put on narrative, right? I can mm-hmm. give you a narrative for anything, right? It, it's our job. to co- I can give you a narrative for anything. It's irrelevant yeah. unless the market justifies it. I'll, I'll give you a, an example. The One of the calls I, I was proud of so far this year has been a bearish view on semis. And it, it seems contradictory to the to the headlines because the headlines for a year have been chip shortage, chip shortage, chip shortage, right? And typically when there's a shortage of something, prices should go up. Mm-hmm. Yet the semis have been behaving as if something structural is wrong or changing or deteriorating and not buying into the consensus narrative of chip shortage is bullish and instead recognizing the reality of semis are breaking down, right? If the story is so bullish, why is NVIDIA and AMD and Micron on the 52-week low list, right? Those things aren't compatible. Right. Yep. Okay. So one of the things that I think we're dealing with right now as investors and as market participants is that the, the market's down, depending on when this releases, let's call it somewhere between 18 and 23%, right, year to date. Got down to 23% in the S&P at the lows, NASDAQ down more than that, 30-ish percent, something like that. So the market has broken, so to speak, meaning we went into bear territory, we've given all of this, all of those gains back, we've had a normalization of, of valuations, and however anybody wants to frame that. However, we have an economy that, although slowing, still is sending signals that everything's pretty much okay. Labor market is so tight. Inflation's still roaring. Consumer's still healthy. All these things, right? So at what point is is the market wrong? Or are we just waiting for the market to be right about this broader cycle question? Yeah, you know, Liz, it's a great question because it's it's a question of, let's think about it this way. When you look at the difference between bear markets with recession and bear mm-hmm. markets without recession, the the real difference is not really in magnitude of the decline, but in the time it takes to ultimately go on and recover. So I, I think the okay. debate at this point is not how much lower does this market go. I mean, that's anyone's guess. Our, our guess is that we still go lower, but I, I don't think it's it's extreme from here. I think we've We've done a lot on the downside, right? We're down yeah. 2025. 20, that's a significant decline. 
even if it went to 30, that would imply that you've priced in, you know, 75% of the client. But what I think people are underappreciating is the amount of repair, the amount of time it may take to recover the old highs or fix the broken charts. And that's where I think the market is suggestive of a recession prolongs that. And frankly, I, mm-hmm. I'm unsure if we're in recession, going into recession, likely to go into recession or not. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I agree yeah. from the standpoint that the data has been a little disorienting. Um, most of the economic data, right, if we were going to look at a, a distribution of data, it's like in the fifth decile, right? Most of the data is kind of in the middle of the range, which believe it or not, is not very helpful in making a market call. I, I know this sounds probably counterintuitive to some of the listeners, but when do you want to get really bullish on stocks? Actually, when the economic data is at its trough, when it's at its worst, yep. right? And, yep. and I know that's disorienting. And when do you actually want to start to exercise caution is when the economic data is actually at its best because it's unlikely to get better. And we're kind of in the middle of that range where I'm not sure we're going to get a clear signal from the data, the economic data here for some time. But I do think we've gotten a pretty clear signal from the market that at a minimum, this is a pretty serious slowdown in economic growth. I think those signals have been a little bit more pronounced globally than they have been here. Um, But nonetheless, uh, I I think that's the message. As as we like to say, the market is our favorite economist. And I think the the data that, that we get every day, the real-time data from the market, I think sends a, a pretty clear message here. Well, I, I won't tell Don that the market is your favorite economist. I'll refrain. The market is, yeah. our, <laughs> is our second favorite economist. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to talk about the relationship. You, you put this out in a piece, I think that was either today or yesterday, about CPI versus yields. Yeah. And when each of them peaks. And then I don't necessarily need you to say, you know, one of them peaks right after the other, that's not necessarily helpful, I don't think, because everything can always happen in different ways. But what I think a lot of people have been connecting is the idea that, okay, if inflation is up, that means the two-year is going to go up because the two-year reflects what the Fed is going to do. And if the Fed is going to keep raising rates, yields will follow in that direction. And then the 10-year as well, if inflation expectations stay high, 10-year goes up. But we've had so much yield volatility and frankly, not a lot of CPI volatility. It's just gone up, yeah. right? And and it's stayed up. And the expectations, we're recording this before the, the CPI print for June, but the expectations are for it to go up again this month. So how do we look at the relationship between something like CPI and treasury yields? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's certainly a timely question. I'll begin with a concession that, I don't know when inflation peaks. I don't know yeah. when bond yields peak. But I do know some of the history around this. And what I think is interesting is how divergent the history is based on what macro regime we've been in. And I, I think we could generously break the world into kind of two macro regimes. I would say there was kind of what we might call the great moderation kind of post-Paul Volcker, post-1980, when mm-hmm. basically the inflation regime was largely non-existent for the last 30 or 40 years. And then I would say there was the pre-Volcker regime where business cycles were much more volatile, inflation data up and down was much more volatile. And what I found interesting, and this was a shock to me when we did this work. It was a shock to me because I think so often in this business, we have recency bias, right? We look at the last 20 or 30 years and expect that to be a representative sample of all of history. It it tends not to be. Mm -hmm. In the last 
roughly 30 years in this, quote, great moderation. Whenever you got these kind of temporary spikes in CPI or inflation, of which there were a handful, um, Mm -hmm. bond yields tended to peak well before the inflation data peaked. Basically, the market, the bond market just never believed that the inflation was structural or going to be with us for a long period of time. So that was my expectation throughout history. And then we went and did this work and we said, okay, well, what did this look like pre-1980? And this is where I was surprised that pre-1980, it was actually the opposite. The CPI data would often peak first. And then six, seven, eight months later, yields would finally roll over. It's almost as if the bond market, or it's almost as if the Fed had lost so much credibility kind of in the 70s that the bond market needed to see the inflation data retreat and stay in retreat until it believed it. So I think we could have a healthy debate about which one of those two regimes is kind of most appropriate right now. And, you know, the other thing kind of on the score that we've noticed in our meetings and our client conversations, I do find it interesting that a lot of investors already want to talk about the inevitable Fed pause or the inevitable Mm -hmm. Fed cut. Like, hmm, I mean, I get it. That will be inevitable, but it seems like there's a lot of daylight between now and then. And we yep. we did some work, this kind of courtesy of Don Rissmuller, our our great economist, but he, he just made the, the very simple observation. If you look at the end of every tightening cycle back to the nineteen early 1970s, in every single instance, the Fed funds rate was higher than the rate of inflation. So mm-hmm. if CPI stayed here at eight, that would mean Fed funds would need to be nine. Now, I think we can agree there's a lot of that's terrifying. A lot of phony, right? I, agree. <laughs> I, I think we could agree there's a lot of phony stuff in that eight, right? And let's say the eight right. comes down to, if the eight comes down to two, fantastic. Fed funds only has to go to two and a half or three. Mm-hmm. But if the inflation get, gets gets stuck at four or three and a half or four and a half, mm-hmm. you need a Fed fund rate that's above that to really squash this. And and, and that I think we don't yet have enough information to know which one of those two is correct. And I think until the well, market does, and, it's going to be choppy here. And and the Fed is raising rates faster than inflation is coming down. So if we continue on these paths, yeah. the Fed funds rate would get higher than that. But I think what would happen in the meantime, and this is my opinion, this is not some kind of fact, or no, Jay Powell did not say this, but what would happen in the meantime is the Fed would go so fast that it would throw us into a recession, and that would certainly take care of inflation. Then you'd see this sort of plummeting off the side of a cliff yeah. on inflation, but also there's destruction that that happens in the rest of the yeah, economy. And, and that's not a predictable. That's not a uh, a very pleasant outcome to all right. of this. And, and I think right. like when you go back over the last year, I mean, the transitory crowd kind of really got dogmatic about about it, and mm-hmm. I, I, I think. If it requires a recession or worse, a deep recession to make inflation go away, that was not the deal everyone signed up for. Right. I, I, right. I don't think the transitory right. crowd can declare victory if getting inflation back to two and a half or two requires uh, the unemployment rate going to five and a half or six. That right. seems like a bargain right. that, that we weren't really told about. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, and if you look up the definition of transitory, not that I've done this, but <laughs> if you look up the definition of transitory, it literally says not permanent. Yeah. <laughs> Which they could actually declare that they were correct because nothing is permanent. It won't end up being permanent. But when we talk about inflation that's been here for more than a year at uncomfortable levels, that is 
far beyond transitory, in my opinion. But as you know, in in this business, we say you weren't wrong; you were just early. Right. Yep. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to wrap this up with a question. I'm gonna I'm gonna make you uh, give me a direct answer okay, to. Okay. Great. What do you think is the most important chart right now? So I'm gonna cheat. I'll give you three because I, I I do think. Oh three, boy. Right. So first one. <laughs> I think dollar yen, the, the the price of the yen is maybe the most important macro chart out there. It is a challenge to central bank orthodoxy of the last 12 or 13 years. Um, mm -hmm. Yen is weakened meaningfully for those who are not aware. Um, the Bank of Japan has tried to keep a cap on bond yields. That seems untenable because the currency market is calling them out. I think the second mm -hmm. most important chart is a 40-year chart of 10-year yields. I mean, our whole careers have been yields falling. A few weeks ago, for the first time, certainly in my career, 10-year yields made a higher high. So their high this cycle was higher than the prior high of the prior cycle. Mm -hmm. And that seems like the makings of a structural change. And I don't know what yields do here in the interim, but I think we've changed the longer-term trend, which has a lot of implications. And then I would say third, and it's, I think related to all of this, We've shown, as you know in our work a lot, the relative performance of the NASDAQ 100, the triple Qs. I think we've put in a major top in the leadership capability of large growth stocks. I think that's done as our leadership for a long time. I'm just very reminded that the last time we went through this growth to more value transition, the low in the NASDAQ in October of 2002 even though that was the bottom in price, it kept underperforming for another four or five years. So like, I'm okay with the idea that some of the stuff bottoms here soon, but I'm skeptical yeah. that large cap growth is going to come back as our leadership immediately. I, I would say that's historically unlikely. So I cheated. I gave you three things, not one, but- That's okay. I'll let you get away with it. When you say though, for a long time, growth won't be the leader for a long time. What's a long time? Is that like in the next two years, it won't be a leader? In the next 10 years, it won't be a leader? So I think it's measured in years. Um, yeah. Let's start with that. Okay. Okay. Fair. I mean, there's there's entire investment philosophies built on the value factor and the small cap factor. And they're, you know, we, you know what these are called, right? There's fund managers that build their entire philosophy around that. And they have, I'm sure, had a frustrating decade. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that like every growth stock is bad and every value stock is great. But I do think mm -hmm. we are um, returning to a macro environment where everyone doesn't get a trophy and there mm -hmm. is a hurdle um, and it's called the risk-free rate and it's not zero anymore, right? When the risk-free rate is zero, there's very little consequence for being wrong. I think that's what yeah. changed here. Yeah, I like that. Not everyone gets a trophy. I don't know if that's popular in today's culture. I Probably think a not. lot of people get trophies, but in investing, <laughs> there's, there's winners and losers. That's just how it goes. Uh, okay. Awesome. Thank you, Chris, so much. I loved this. I think, I hope our listeners love it too. I think it was insightful. And I think it's something that not a lot of people really understand. How do you use technical analysis? How do you use charting as a supplement to the investment decision-making process? It's not the only thing that goes into it. It's it's one of the things that goes into it. Well, Liz, thank you for having me. It was my great privilege to be a part of this. So thanks again. Okay. So some of the, the principles that 
I really took away from that, and I think the audience, I hope, I hope you also took away from that. First and foremost, which is so true, is that the language of Wall Street is charts and pictures, and that is so true. So charts, although sometimes, you know, send strange signals or maybe the wrong signal, and they can be misinterpreted, and that's the challenge of some of this technical analysis, but we do always look at them still, and that's not going anywhere. The other thing that I think it was really interesting and and also very true is that we're always only operating with about 60 to 70% of the information that we really would prefer to have to make an investment decision. And then some of the other stuff that I just some quotes that I loved of his market, the market is a better forecaster than me. And that is uh, also very, very true. The market is our favorite economist. The mar- Look, the market tells you stuff earlier than a lot of the data is going to tell you. And we're in a time right now where the economy and a lot of the data around whether it be the consumer or the labor market or other indicators, uh, they're not necessarily ringing with alarm bells right now that there's a huge problem. But the market has clearly sent a signal that uh, something is coming from a slowdown perspective. And then lastly, and this is something that I have learned even more so this year, is that when you're wrong or when you've tried to make a call and, and you've kind of stuck your neck out there, but the data just is not confirming it, you have to be willing to change. You have to be willing to recheck your work, is, is what Chris called it. Recheck your work and, and change your stance if the data just isn't there to support it. So I hope everybody enjoyed that. And I cannot wait to bring you the next interview soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at SoFi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Youngstrap. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.